But we are going to continue our series in Mark this morning. So please turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 9. This is Mark chapter 1, and I'll read for us verses 9 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this good news of your Son this morning, who took on flesh and stood in the waters of baptism on our behalf. Holy Spirit, as you anointed the Son for his work as Messiah, so would you work in our hearts to receive and rest in Jesus as our Savior. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week we looked at the beginning. We talked about how every good story has a good beginning, and and we saw uh, how Mark begins his story, or, or, or better put, his historical account of the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. This is the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus done, uh, has done. But he didn't start with Jesus. He, he started with John the Baptist. He started with prophecy. He started with everything that has come before that now is being fulfilled in the person and in the, in the work of Christ. But now, as we get to verse 9, Jesus is here. He's here now. He's shown up. And what we'll see, that like, like every good story has a beginning, every storyteller has his own style. He has his own purpose. And we see a bit of, of that come out here in, uh, in these two verse, or in these uh, two events that Mark records. Mark has a very unique style to how he writes. It sets, his, sets him apart from other gospel writers. Mark is the shortest of all the gospels. He does not provide the level of detail or information uh, like Matthew or Luke uh, will do. And this fact is, is especially evident in the account of Jesus' baptism and in his temptation. There's no account of Jesus' birth. There's no account of his, his family, at least at this point. Uh, there's no uh, discussion of the geopolitical uh, atmosphere of that time and what everything was going on, all those different situations. And whereas Matthew and Luke, they spend, will spend full chapters on these things, Mark spends five verses. And is this because Mark doesn't care? Is it because he doesn't think that these things are that important? Well, that's certainly not the case. In fact, Mark gives us exactly what he wants us to, to know, exactly what he thinks is most important to prove his main proposition, the purpose of writing this gospel account. Remember verse 1, that this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Sometimes we wish Mark would give us more information about what's going on, but he gives us precisely what we need. 
He's giving us exactly what we need in order to answer this question that he puts before us. Who is Jesus? That's the question that he's wanting us to ask. Who is Jesus? And he answers that question emphatically in these two episodes that we'll look at today. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That's what these short five verses and these events of his baptism and temptation, that's what they, that's what they show us. That's what they prove. All of this proves that proposition in that first verse. And what's really interesting, that's the only time Mark ever gives his opinion about Jesus in, in the entire gospel. It's in that first verse. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The rest of the gospel, the rest of his account, he's wanting us to ask that question, who is Jesus? To take the facts of the matter, to take this historical account and all these events, everything that Jesus says, everything he does, and for us to ask that question, who is Jesus? And so when we have that question in mind, and when we look at these verses, there is that only conclusion that we can reach, that truly what Mark says is, is correct. Jesus is the Messiah. So we're going to look at these five verses together this morning, how he shows us this account of Jesus' baptism and his temptation, how these prove that he is the Messiah. So we're going to look at these uh, two events. We're going to look at them with three uh, overarching points, his inauguration, his identification, and then his temptation. We're going to look at those three things over these five verses. So let's look at those things together. And we'll start with his inauguration. Like we already mentioned, compared to the other gospel accounts, Mark gives us almost no information about the events surrounding Jesus' birth. There is no record that Mark gives of his, of his miraculous birth, no record of the Virgin Mary, uh, nothing uh, uh, about any of that and with his family up to uh, this point at the beginning. So what does Mark tell us about Jesus? Well, first, he tells us about the beginning of his ministry, his inauguration into the office of Messiah. That's what his baptism signifies. This was the formal beginning of his ministry. As the Messiah of his people, he is now beginning the work and ministry in the waters of baptism. When we think about uh, inauguration, usually our minds will, will drift to our presidential election uh, cycles. The president of the United States is elected every four years, and once elected, he takes office on Inauguration Day, on January 20th. And, the, uh, and even though the incoming president, he's, he's elected in November, um, he, he's declared a winner at that point, uh, he's the president-elect. He's not yet fully taken office. He's not sworn the oath of office. He's not been inaugurated. His term has not yet begun. And so in the same way, Jesus now comes to the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, and this is the beginning of his term. This is the beginning of his role. His ministry as, as Messiah is officially begun at this point. And so we see Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's what Mark tells us. 
He does not give us the background of John's protest to Jesus' request to be baptized like, like Matthew does. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, uh, we're told that John would, would protest against Jesus and say, but I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me to be baptized. And so remember, John, his baptism with water was a baptism of repentance. But he said that there is the one coming after me who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John, he recognized and he knew his true need to receive the baptism that only Christ can give. But Jesus will tell John that he must be baptized, Jesus himself, he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? And why doesn't Mark fill us in on these details? Well, it's because he wants the event to speak for itself. He wants us to see that Jesus, the Son of God, was baptized in the Jordan River by John. This same baptism that we saw earlier, that was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, verse 4 tells us. So you can put yourself in John's situation, and we might wonder the same thing. Well, this baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus, you are the Son of God. There's nothing that you have to repent of. You are God in flesh. You are the one who forgives. There's nothing that you have ever done or ever will do that would ever need forgiveness. But it must be this way because this is how the Son of God begins his ministry. And in fact, this was the ministry to which he was sent. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, this is the significance of that event. When he was baptized in the Jordan River, he was standing in our place, standing in solidarity with sinners. He was going to secure the salvation of his people. Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way. He says, His baptism inaugurates him publicly into his role as the priest who bears away the sins of men in order to bring them forgiveness and salvation. This was the purpose for which Christ came to seek and to save sinners. He came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Christ came to save you and to save me. And he stands in in baptism there, standing with us in in solidarity with us. The perfect Son of God who became man and bore our sins in his own body. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Christ is doing here. He stands in our place. He bears our sin. This was his purpose. This was his mission. And in his baptism now, he is beginning this ministry. So he is inaugurated to the ministry. Then we also keep reading and we see that he is identified. We we read in verse 10 this identification. That as soon as he was baptized, we read... He came up out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him 
like a dove. This was the anointing of the Spirit upon him, empowering him for the ministry. So here then, he is clearly identified and declared the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And we see that there is both a a visual and a verbal identification and a declaration of of who he is. So this this dove-like descent provides a, a visual, a seal, and a visual symbol of the presence of God in Christ. This moment, it, it points us back. It points us back to the Old Testament. It reminds us of, of the story of Noah. And you remember the story of how God's wrath and God's judgment was literally poured out upon mankind in the judgment floods and in the water. He, he flooded the earth. He, he washed away the wickedness and the ungodly. Yet God, in His mercy, He saved Noah and his family in the ark. And as the flood waters subsided, as the, as the ark uh, found a place to, to set, uh, Noah, he, he sent out a dove. He sent out a dove from the ark, which event, eventually found a place to rest, and it did not return. And that was the indication that God's judgment was over, that they could leave the ark and begin again, begin the, the work of, of being God's people once again. In the same way, the Spirit, in in dove-like fashion, came to rest upon Christ. And this moment symbolizes that in the person and work of Christ, God's judgment would be completed. And that it is in Christ that God's people can find shelter and rest from the storm. It is in Christ that God begins the work of new creation, which He will ultimately fulfill when Christ returns. And it is in Christ where God's people find that shelter and refuge and protection from His wrath, from the judgment against sin. Christ is the ark in which we are saved from the flood of God's wrath against all wickedness and unrighteousness. And just as he provided salvation for Noah and his family, so too is salvation provided for us if you were to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, the Messiah. That is the anointing, that is the seal, that is the symbol of the dove that descends the Spirit in dove-like fashion, descending upon Christ. So there's that visual seal. There's also this audible and and verbal seal and symbol of of God's approval on Jesus. The identification that he truly is the Christ. So verse 11 tells us that a voice came from heaven which says, You are my beloved son. Or we could say, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You hear the, the three statements that are made in that short sentence, that short verse. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. These three statements, echoing three Old Testament passages themselves as well. And therefore, we see how Jesus' identity is made known in reference to everything that was promised, everything that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And so we see first that God the Father declares, You are my son. 
That's what he declares over Christ in his baptism. This is a declaration made in Psalm 2. That wonderful messianic psalm in which it is declared and we are told about the reign of of the Lord Yahweh, the reign of of God's anointed one. And so Psalm 2, 7 says that I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me, you are my son. That is what's said of the Lord to his anointed. You are my son. And so we see in the waters of baptism here, this declaration made that this is who Jesus is. Jesus is that Son. He is the Son of the Father. And in His baptism, He is declared to be the Son who is God's anointed. He receives the anointing of the Spirit. He is declared the King over every kingdom, the King over all the earth, heaven and earth. Everything will be put under His feet. You are my Son. Then there is the declaration that not only is He the Son, but He is the Son whom the Father loves. That's the second statement, the second declaration that's made here. And this statement, it echoes, has echoes of of Abraham and the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, the son of the promise, especially when Abraham was told to bring Isaac up the mountain in Genesis 22, to sacrifice Isaac there. And in that chapter, Isaac, this son of the promise, is described as Abraham's only son, whom you love. Isaac was to be given as a sacrifice to God. Yet in the moment, God stopped Abraham's hand. And instead of Isaac, God provided the sacrifice for them. God provides the sacrifice. And in this moment in Jesus' baptism, we understand truly, fully, what God meant and what was being foreshadowed in that story of Abraham and Isaac. This is what is declared in that famous, most well-known verse, for God so loved the world that He sent, that He gave His only begotten Son, the Son whom He loves. That is what He did. God provided the sacrifice of His own Son, whom he loves so dearly, but it was out of his love for you, for me, for his people that he sent his son to stand in our place and to die in our place in order to save us from our sins. You are my son, whom I love. And thirdly, it's declared, this verbal declaration, with you I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. I take delight in you, my son. This phrase has echoes of the the great promise and prophecy given in Isaiah, through Isaiah the prophet, of this suffering servant who would come, in whom God's soul would delight, upon whom God would put his spirit. This is the one in whom God is pleased. And that's Christ's identity. Over Christ, over Jesus, God the Father declares, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. But here's the incredible good news. 
is that this is how God the Father feels toward you if you are in Christ Jesus, His Son. Do you know, do you understand that this is how God views you? Not as a wrathful God in heaven, not as a vindictive or or mean-spirited master, but as a father who delights in his children. This is what the Father declares over you. If you are in Christ, this is, this is the glory, this is the wonder of our union with Christ. If you are united to Christ by your faith, having faith in Christ, the Spirit working faith in you, uniting you to Christ, then everything that Christ has is yours. You have been given every spiritual blessing, and so you can know that God declares over you You are my son. I love you. I'm well pleased in you. You are my daughter, whom I love dearly, and I delight over you. What would it mean for us if we were to take those words seriously? If we were to truly believe them, that this is how God views you? that your sins are forgiven. They're separated as far as the east is from the west. There's no farther that you can get than that. But God has made you a new creation. Not only has he saved you, but he takes great delight in you. This is who Christ is. This is how he's identified. He was inaugurated for this mission to go and save sinners and to bring us into that relationship with God. And so if what is true of Christ is true of us, he who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange that happens. That's true of of every one of us. If you've put your faith in Christ, that is true of you. So how and why would we not believe in this one who is the Messiah? Well, We've seen in the waters of baptism how Christ is he's inaugurated to the, to the mission. He, he's identified as the, as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And it's at this moment then that Mark takes a, a drastic turn. One of Mark's favorite words to use is the word immediately. We've already seen one. We, we see another here in this next verse. We'll see plenty throughout as we go through the gospel. This is Mark's way of, of moving the action along, story to story, event to event. He wants us to see everything that's happening and to get the picture and to see the importance of what Christ is doing. And so we read in verse 12, 12 and 13, that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So this same spirit who just anointed him uh, two verses prior, and now he drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. And Mark, he does not highlight, he doesn't mention the specific temptations that he faced uh, that Matthew and Luke will record for us. Rather, his emphasis is on the fact that Jesus faced all of Satan's temptations and faced them head on in Satan's own turf, as it were, out in the desert, 
and the desolate wilderness. And Mark is the only gospel to include this information about wild beasts, about these wild animals. Well, why does Mark mention those here? Mark is, is so few of words already, why would he waste uh, a few words with such a trivial statement like that? The reference to wild animals, it reinforces what Christ was sent to do and what he accomplished. And it shows us that he truly is the second and the last Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed. Well, what does that mean and how do, how do we get all of that from a reference to wild animals? Well, here's what I mean. Here's what we see. Adam was created and he was placed in the garden by God. He was given life by the breath of God, and he was tasked with caring for all of this creation, tending to the garden, and we're told that God brought to him every creature, every living thing, and Adam would name it, give it its purpose. This was his exercise of authority that he had as God's chief crowning uh, creation. And it was in this garden, this beautiful dwelling place of God, where all of his needs were richly supplied. It is here where the first Adam was tempted, along with his wife Eve, and where they failed in that temptation. Where they failed the Satan and his, his temptation. They were cast out of the garden. And because of their sin, the world was plunged into sin and into darkness. And so this is the state of mankind that the second Adam now steps into. And the Spirit drove him, not into a lush garden, but into a blistering desert wilderness. Not with creatures that were there to serve him, but with wild animals and wild beasts that were there uh, and would be endangering to him. And so in other words, Jesus took the fight to the devil himself. This was the proven crowns, that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam would succeed, and that he would begin to undo the curse. And in this desert temptation, we see not only how Jesus is the true and better Adam, but he's the true and better Israel as well. Like the people of Israel journeyed in the desert for 40 years, suffering and and, uh, giving into many temptations and and murmuring and grumbling against God, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days, suffering the same temptations to disobey God, but where the first Israel failed, the true and better Israel succeeds. And so Ferguson, again, he tells us that Jesus needed to enter the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. Jesus was sent into the world that Adam had left behind by sin. That we as Adam's children, born in sin ourselves, had no power to fix, but Christ steps in. That is what he does. He entered into the desert, into a fallen and broken world, and he defeats Satan and all of his temptations. And this new and better Adam, this new and better Israel, secures the redemption of God's people. And brings us back into right relationship with us. What was promised, what was there for us in the garden to begin with. That is what Christ does. That's the significance of his temptation. And we are told that he was ministered to by the angels themselves. Truly, he is 
the Son of God. There is no power in the world, not even the, the arch enemy, the, the arch demon, the, the, the enemy of, of God, Satan himself, the adversary. Nothing was going to stop him from accomplishing and achieving his victory. So in these three things then, the, the inauguration, the identification, and in his temptation in the wilderness, Mark puts this question before us. He asks us, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the same spirit who inspired Mark to write this gospel account, that spirit is putting that question before you and before all of us this morning. Everyone who would ever pick up this gospel and read it, everyone who would ever hear what's proclaimed in these words, who is Jesus? And we all have to answer that question. And what we see is that Jesus is, He's a friend of sinners. He stands in solidarity with us in baptism for the repentance of sins. And so do you feel a heavy burden this morning? Do you feel the weight of sin? Well, there's one who understands how you feel. And there's one who provides forgiveness. It is Jesus. And Jesus, He is our identity. And so are you overcome with grief? Or are you full of doubt? Do you lack assurance? Do you struggle in your faith? Well, then look to Jesus. Because He's the assurance that our Heavenly Father loves us truly and delights in us. How wonderful is it to know that our Heavenly Father delights, takes pleasure in, loves, cherishes you. That comfort is extended to you if you were to trust and to fall into Jesus' loving arms. And Jesus is our Savior. He defeats sin and temptation on our behalf. We all know the feeling of having a guilty conscience. We fall into temptation regularly. We, we hate our sin, but we feel powerless to overcome it at times. Well, here is one who faced every temptation on our behalf, yet never sinned. No action, no word, not even a thought. There was never an impure or, or bad or sinful thought that ever crossed Jesus' mind. He was perfect in all of his ways. Such a person, such a, such a God like Jesus, he truly is worthy to be praised. He's, he's one to follow. He's one to give our lives to. So who is Jesus? Well, he's all of these things. Just in these five short verses, Mark tells us this grand story of who Jesus is, one that takes an entire lifetime to unpack. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So let's put our faith and our trust in Him this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that You are the Messiah who saves Your people from their sins. You are the Son of God whom the Father loves. Help us to take these words to heart and to trust in you today. That if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And the words declared over Christ, you are also willing and you love to declare over us that we are your beloved children, with whom you are well pleased. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this good news. We pray this in your name. Amen.